There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can civil discourse help us be the best version of our society? That's our question today for our guests on Future Hindsight, Alan Yarborough and Bill Steverson. Alan is the communications coordinator and office manager in the Office of Government Relations of the Episcopal Church in Washington. And he's also the co-author of the Civil Discourse Five-Week Curriculum, a sort of masterclass on how to communicate as a society, even when disagreeing, and treat each other with respect and dignity. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Bill Steverson is a parishioner in the Episcopal Church in Signal Mountain, Tennessee, where he organized the course on civil discourse. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here. Alan, how did the Office of Government Relations come to this idea of rolling out a curriculum on civil discourse within the church? So our office is tasked with representing the policy positions of the Episcopal Church that come from our governing body. Uh, and we represent those primarily to the U.S. federal government. We cover a lot of different topics and don't expect everyone's going to agree on every single issue, but we hope that people sort of get involved in the work at its core. What that means from my particular perspective in the office, dealing with uh, what I'll call our constituent engagements or, or individual Episcopalians, will receive feedback from people who don't think we're going far enough or who completely disagree with us. And in hearing the nature of those conversations, the nature of that feedback that we receive, I uh, was really hoping to develop a tool that would help people have better conversations than they were having around these particular topics to improve how they understood one another uh, and how they understood the work of our office. Tell us a little bit about the program. How are you teaching it? Yeah, so the program is designed for really small groups to engage with it. Our target audience for publicizing the program is to formation leaders and parishes or uh, priests, clergy, lay leaders who might use this in a small group setting within their church. That might be a Sunday forum or an afternoon program, a campus ministry, uh, even youth ministries may, may use it. And so the package is intended to have handouts and facilitator guides to help people walk through this in a, in a five-part series. So, Bill, please tell me, why were you interested in taking this course? Well, several reasons, but but the main one was um, we live in a small community up on a mountain outside of Chattanooga, and what, what I saw and what a lot of other people saw uh, was over the past couple of years, the, the discourse, the, the civility had, had decreased quite a bit. Um, you know, we're like any other small community. We have our fights and we have our disagreements. But never in, in the many years that I've been there have we called each other names, have we questioned each other's morals 
and and we were doing that. It was it was not a pleasant environment. And so one day I just saw a flyer for a um, a conference on civil discourse and and went to it. And it turns out that that Alan was one of the presenters. And at that course, um, I learned about his curriculum. So I came back to Signal Mountain and we talked it over and decided to do it. One thing we did differently than than what Alan's course was, um, we made it a community forum rather than a an individual church forum, and I think that worked well for us. Oh, that's really fascinating. Alan, you actually wrote this for the Episcopal Church. What makes the church community fertile ground for this type of civil discourse or a class on it? I like that question, and you know, I have grew up in the Episcopal Church and have a little bit of a bias uh, toward it, but I really think the Episcopal Church in particular, but other church communities as well, are in a unique position to offer something to the broader communities. You know, there's a reason for people to come together that's not along political boundaries. And so that allows for more interaction between folks who may disagree with each other politically. Uh, And then the Episcopal Church itself, sort of the composition of the denomination closely mirrors the general American public. The composition of of the church allows for, I think, an opportunity for richer conversation and inviting the community into that um, as a part of the churches living out, you know, their particular ministries and their presence um, where each individual parish is. So, Bill, since you actually invited the larger community, how did that work out? Who came outside of the church? Well, I, I was scared to death there wouldn't be many people, but we did this over a period of four weeks and um, had a exceptionally large turnout for our size of community. There were people from our church, but there were mostly people from outside of our church. And the public officials all participated. In fact, the last session we had was mostly a candidate's forum, but it was a forum on civil discourse. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that, the candidate's forum. What happened there? This was back in in, uh, October and early November, and then the election was coming up for all the uh, offices for our town council. There was a proposal to build a big box grocery store up on the mountain. Half the people wanted it and the other half didn't. There was also a proposal to separate our school system from the county school system, and that divided the community. And we thought this um, involving the candidates in in our civil discourse discussion would, would be helpful. I just ran into the newly elected mayor uh, who participated in all the sessions, and he said that this course helped him to create a monthly open session with the general public and basically just to discuss items. And he said that we never would have done that had not we been pushed by, by this course. So it did, it did have a, a few little results. Sounds like that's uh, pretty major. I have a question for Alan about the curriculum. What is a way to overcome disagreement in our discourse? I think that it's really helpful to have a diversity of ideas. When civil discourse isn't about taking on someone else's perspective as your own, it's not about giving it particular merit over other positions. It's simply about trying to understand where the other person is coming from. And the fact of the matter is that when it comes to policymaking and and building legislation in Congress or at the state level or local level, it's not always clear what the right way forward is. 
there can be good elements to different perspectives or different policy proposals. And if we don't have the civil discourse to really understand what those are, we're not going to unlock the best of each proposal um, and won't be moving forward with uh, with the best product possible. Right. So what you're saying is the key is is doing the discourse properly so we can hear each other out and understand each other as opposed to trying to take on other people's positions and convincing ourselves to agree or vice versa, trying to convince the other person to agree. Absolutely. And I think humility comes in. I think through this process, we and others will find you know our position shifting and, and modifying and, and improving them along the way because we can't know everything there is to know about any issue. It's going to take all of us together working on this to fully address it. So, Bill, in your experience, how successful was it in adhering to the tenets and really having a civil discourse that's not mean? Well, if, if you'll give me a couple of minutes, I'll share a little personal story, and I, I, I think it has a couple of points. Not too long ago, our coffee maker broke, you know, which is a crisis in middle America. So I, somebody told me of a little mom-and-pop small appliance repair store, so I took it there, walked in, and the owner, the middle-aged gentleman, he was standing behind the counter talking to another customer. He was livid, and he was almost shouting, first to the other customer, and then he saw me and just started yelling about um, the NFL football players who had taken a knee uh, rather than stand up for the national anthem. And he was talking about how unpatriotic that was and they should be locked up in jail. And and my politics are different. And my first reaction was just to walk out, but that wouldn't repair my coffee maker. And my second reaction was to tell him where he could shove it and to to give it to him as best as he was giving it to me and then I said, that probably won't repair my coffee maker either. And then I thought about the, the civil discourse class that we had. And two things that jumped out to me within the couple of seconds I was processing this in my head was listen to what the other person is saying. And, and to me, that was the hardest thing to do was to listen to him. But I forced myself to listen. And the other point was, um, Alan said it, in his course to, to try to find common values. So after the guy had finished yelling and pontificating for a while, I basically said, listen, I hear you, but I disagree with you. And I think that these players are showing deep patriotism and they're showing what's good about America. But I hear you and I understand what you're trying to say and I respect that view. And we had a not a pleasant conversation, but an okay conversation for just a few minutes. And then he finally said, well, I hear you too. And I left my coffee maker, came back the next day. He hands it to me and says, no charge. So I guess to me, the moral of, of that is that old crotchety white men like me can change their ways, and I did by taking this course. And the second thing is that listening is the hardest part, because we are so accustomed in our discourse to just tune people out, 
but the course we took and the discussions we had in that course helped me personally in that little conversation. Oh, that's a great story. Listening deeply is very difficult, and I'm very impressed that you were able to process so quickly. I have a question for Alan about the values-based conversations. Why should we always begin civil discourse from a place of values? I think part of the reason is to help combat this nature we seem to be in, and in the U.S. in particular, to be more confrontational, to always jump to talking about my position, my point of view, and to sort of take a step back from that initial reaction and say, okay, what are the what are the values that are underlying my political position here? And what are the values of the other person? And maybe we share those in common. And if you start the conversation there, there's a much greater likelihood of having a more constructive and positive engagement moving forward. What happens then when you are in discourse with someone who does not share the same values? Yeah, and that's a great question. And if you think about the definition of civil discourse, it's conversation to enhance understanding. Having civil discourse with someone whose values differ from you is an opportunity to understand where they're coming from, to learn about it. Again, it doesn't mean you're taking on their position. It doesn't have to mean you're giving more credibility to their position, but you're learning about them and about that point of view, how it comes about. And if you show respect, uh, engage with humility, then there's a greater likelihood that they're going to do the same for you, and you'll also have an opportunity to share your perspective. One of the, one of the things that, that we saw in this series of forums that we held is, is most of the people came to the conclusion that no matter how many differences you have with somebody, if you try hard enough, you can find that common value. Alan's curriculum has a little exercise that you do, and, and it is, you know, identify from a long list what you think are, the, are your main personal values, and then think of somebody who, who you have gotten into an argument with or somebody who you disagree with or somebody who has the opposite political views of you and try to list what their values and see if any of them overlap. Um, and our group, we had fun with that exercise because probably three-quarters of them quickly found something that they could identify as common. But about a quarter of the people said, no, I don't have any values with this other person, so how can I have a conversation with them? But my contention is if you try hard enough and work hard enough, you, you can find those common values. Right. There are some things that are pretty universal, right, especially when it comes to children. I really like that the curriculum addresses policymaking and legislation. This is a messy process, and it's unclear what the actual consequences are of any given policy after it's been implemented, you know, compared to how it was intended in the beginning. How can we make sound decisions, Alan, that reflect our ethics and values? Yeah, so I think that the concept of civil discourse or the practice of civil discourse really is about unlocking a way forward to do that. We all have differing political views, but if we're not having good dialogue, healthy conversation, if we're not understanding each other, those tools aren't going to work together. So the whole process of civil discourse and, and trying to build up that practice to engage in more constructive conversation with one another really is about building better policy. It is about building better legislation, whether that's something uh, like in Bill's case that's at the, at the really local level or it's something that's more national and 
for example, I've worked with the, the clergy in the Diocese of Connecticut using this curriculum to discuss issues of gun reform and gun violence. So it's something that is, is applicable really no matter what the topic is, but it's applicable because it's about unlocking all of these gifts and these perspectives. Yeah, that's uh, very well put. What are the false narratives about the value and significance of civil discourse? Because we are currently actively devaluing it on television nowadays or on talk radio. Ones that come to mind is that, you know, civil discourse is, is the only means of engagement. It's not to say that the only two options are to be civil in civil discourse or to just be uncivil. I don't think that's accurate. I think civil discourse really is a particular tool for a particular type of engagement and interaction with one another. There are other possibilities or other ways of expression, of freedom of speech, voicing our opinions and perspectives that don't necessarily have to be a part of the practice of civil discourse. Civil rights leaders didn't always agree with one another, but there was something more fundamental that they did agree with. There were values that they did share and do share now to bring all of their gifts together. They're still using civil discourse to find a better way forward. So, Bill, I have a question for you about how your civil discourse helped you in your discussions with the candidates about the big box store. I, th I think one, one of the candidates said that he was tired of going to the coffee shop or going to the small grocery store as a citizen and being jumped and yelled at by somebody else. We don't have to be so acidic. Um, it's nice to be nice every once in a while. We're also learning how to try to turn the conversation into a more kindly conversation. We all agreed as a, as a group that we needed to continue the discussion, that it's not just a one-time thing, that you've got to have those discussions face-to-face. -face. You've got to have them in, as a community in person. So we're continuing to to meet, but we're not we're not doing it through social media because for some reason, and Alan might have better perspective than I do, for some reason it seems that social media is not very good at encouraging good civil discourse. All right, Alan, here's your field. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that's your question. It is. Yeah, I think Bill, I think that's right, and that. It gets back to an earlier question of how can churches play, you know, a particular role in, in promoting and building civil discourse. Church is a, a place that people do come together in person. There's something more real and genuine and personable about actually being face-to-face -face with someone. And I think our, our interactions are quite different when we're there looking at someone in the eye. Nonverbal communication is you know, the vast majority of our communication. And when we're behind our keyboards or our phone screens, you know, tapping away to respond on social media. We don't get that, nor do we give it. And so that really cuts down on how effective we are talking to one another. There are, I think, uses to social media, but it's not necessarily our forum for engaging folks in conversation. Doing that in person is really, it's more effective. It may seem slower, but it really is more effective for this type of, of deep and, and necessary work sort of a sacred space for debate uh, in the curriculum. Oh, tell us more about that, the sacred space for debate. There's really something sacred about sort of the pursuit of, of understanding one another. This building up this practice to sharpen our minds, advance our ideas, uh, improve our, our ideas, and, and, and put them together so that we can move forward. It brings us together. It, it opens up opportunities to discuss new topics, to learn new things. 
and recognize the humanity in one another, especially at sort of in a period of time where I feel like we, we're losing that. And I think it's important to, to really be informed by ideas beyond our own, be aware of, of possible other perspectives and, and learn flaws that we have in our own thinking. So have you been surprised by anything in the time that you have rolled out this curriculum and taught it and interacted with people around the curriculum? I think I really was surprised at how well it's been received in the church, or at least how widespread it's been received, to have groups working on it on, on such different topics as, as you know, a grocery store or, or gun reform is really significant. And I think that I, I've taken that as, as something really encouraging for the curriculum itself and how applicable it is. It was just exciting to see it have that type of visibility um, and reach within the church. So then, Bill, how about you? Was there anything that you learned that surprised you or something that happened in the class over the four weeks that you thought, oh, I didn't think this was going to happen? Well, the the sheer number of people who, who came, and, and, and I hesitate to use the word the excitement, but the interest in, in continuing the conversation has been really strong and impressive. I, I didn't expect that when we got into it. I thought it would be more of a uh, trudging along, trying to get people interested. And instead, it was, I need to find more chairs because we've run out of chairs for people to sit in. I ran into the mayor the, the other day, and, and he said, you know, this is a starting point, and maybe we can be, uh, we as a town, not as just your church, but just as a town, we can be a little uh, example to some of the other towns around on, on, on how to get along with each other, how to how to how to govern in a in a more respective way and a more more pleasant way. Here, here, I think there's a real hunger for more humanity in everything that we do nowadays here in America. So, final question: Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Bill, you go first. Well, I'm hopeful for the for the reasons I just stated, and, and you said very eloquently that there seems to be a hunger for, for for making our individual lives and making our communal lives better. And one of the ways we can do that is to listen, to understand, and, and to, to find common ground. And, and that makes me hopeful, yes. And how about you, Alan? What makes you hopeful? Yeah, I, I second Bill's remarks. And I'm also hopeful for the increasing, you know, diversity and, and representation that is taking place in communities across the country. I think that's bringing in rich ideas, new perspectives um, that are so critical to have and have been absent for a long time. So um, I'm hopeful for that reason as well. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Thank you, Alan, especially for the work that you do. And thank you, Bill, for taking this leadership in your community. It's been fun talking to you, and I thank you in return for, for this great podcast that you're doing, and it, it's fun, isn't it? It is. Thank you. And it's really fantastic to meet people like both of you. I think that's my favorite part about it is that there are so many people actually who are invested and actively engaged in trying to make our communities better. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been great to be a part of this. I so enjoyed speaking with Bill, with his earnest enthusiasm for a society that engages productively in civil discourse, and Alan, of course, who has created a course for members of the Episcopal Church to learn how to be good participants in civil discourse. I thought it was so helpful for him to point out that civil discourse is not about persuading someone about our own convictions, 
but it's about engaging in disagreement. Civil discourse can be successful if we can find common values and always communicate with respect and humility. I wonder how we can create this sacred space that we discussed today, where we can find the courage to listen deeply to each other, even when we're disagreeing, when we communicate with respect and humility, and where we can find our common values. How can eyewitness videos create human rights change? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Jackie Zamudo. She's the program manager in the United States for Witness, an organization that helps human rights defenders use video to expose injustice. Her work includes police accountability, immigrant rights, indigenous rights, and beyond. What can video actually do? We still have sometimes a sense that video can change everything. Even though my work is so focused on video, it's important to recognize the challenges that it can pose to us. And it's important to think about how video can be used in conjunction with other tactics. So if we are trying to fight for social justice, video alone is not going to do that. But it can be used as a way to complement other tools and activities and initiatives. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.